gives here that takes up the bulk of Acts chapter 7 is not Stephen trying to plead for his life or prove his innocence. It's actually just the opposite. He is, he is in a sense, going to prove the guilt of those who are accusing him, the leadership of Israel. And he is basically going to declare the purity of, of the worship that God desires. He's going to lay out the truth of God for them and again, let it fall where it may. And if you know Acts chapter 7, you know where it falls. He ends up dying for what he has proclaimed and for what he believes. We're going to see tonight a lot about God in this chapter. We're going to see a lot about Stephen in this chapter, and obviously we're going to see a lot about the religious leaders of Israel in this chapter. And we can, in a sense, glean and learn and be challenged by all of it. But I want to start sort of in a strange place tonight. I want to start in Acts chapter 7 at verse 20. And we're going to come back to this passage here dealing with Moses for a minute. But as Stephen is recounting some things of Israel's history here, he is talking about Moses. And he says about Moses in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, that when Moses was born, he was beautiful to God. Now, unlike what you and I may think, obviously what that word beautiful means in the English language, very interestingly, that word comes from the root, which in the Greek language means a city. And if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, beautiful a city (laughs) how does that come together how do i even get something out of that and i'm going to give you my understanding of it and why i think moses was described that way twice in the bible once in the book of hebrews and once here in the book of acts i want you to listen to these words and then even tie them in with what Jesus talked about, how he wanted his followers to be at the beginning of the book of Acts. Just listen to these words. I'm not going to take time for you to turn there. These are the words of Jesus now in Matthew's gospel. He says, you are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. I think one of the ways that God is helping us to understand beauty, if you will, from His perspective, is not so much physical, but a spiritual if you will, illumination that lights other people and that God looks at that as beautiful. And God saw that Moses one day was going to be a great light for him. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, what does Jesus say he wants his followers predominantly to be for him? He wants them to be witnesses. And a witness is simply a light unto Jesus. Someone who, by their life, by their words, by their actions and reactions, is reflecting God to others. And the reason I wanted to start off there is that's exactly what Stephen was being here in this chapter before the leadership of Israel. 
He was being a light to the leaders of Israel. Now, they were going to reject that light. But again, as we've talked about, God doesn't hold us responsible for other people's response. But He does ask of His people, I am the light of the world. I have come into your life and given you light. Now I want you to go and be that city that is set on a hill. God wants His people to live in such a way that He actually can place them before others so that others can see His light in them and be drawn to Him. That's exactly what we've been talking about on Sundays, even out of the book of Romans with the nation of Israel. And it amazes me how God can can dovetail these messages that we're going through on Sunday and Tuesday and bring them together. That's exactly, again, what God's desire for Israel was, that they, in a sense, would be a city, something beautiful before the nations of the world so that the nations of the world could look at His chosen people and see Him through them. Nothing's changed. He wants His people, now the church, to be that as well. He wants us to be beautiful, in the way that we shine our light for Him out into the world. Again, that's exactly what Stephen was doing here in Acts chapter 7. So notice then, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 7, the high priest said, are these things true? In other words, these accusations of speaking against God, the temple, the holy place, the, 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 the law of Moses and all this. And remember, as I ended last week, I said, it's not that Stephen was actually putting down anything like that. What he was doing was he was exalting Jesus Christ. And when he exalted Jesus Christ in the eyes of the religious leaders of Israel, then automatically everything else had to be beneath Jesus. And they couldn't take that. That that was just something that didn't sit well with with the religious leaders of Israel. And so I want to go on here for just a moment and, and show you one of the things that he wants to declare to the, to the leaders of Israel, and let's face it, just like I even said on Sunday, it's not that these leaders didn't know the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament better than I'll ever know the Old Testament. But one of the things that Stephen is going to point out is, like many people even today who, who maybe read and, and know the New Testament, are we really grasping the intent behind what God has revealed? And what Stephen is going to say to them is, you know the Old Testament probably better than I do. But have you really grasped the intent of what God meant when he said these things? It's sort of like, say, when, you know, you're a married couple or or even sometimes as friends or whatever, you know, you look at each other and go, I don't think you're really getting what I'm saying. You're not understanding what I mean. You're not grasping what I'm trying to communicate. And I think that that's what, what was happening in Israel. That's what happens many times to people today. They might... They might take in what God has revealed, but are they really grasping the meaning and the intent of it? And Stephen is going to say no for several reasons. One, notice he replied in a a very respectful way to start out with. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The word listen means give careful consideration to. The God of glory appeared to our forefather Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, he's starting off right here in Acts chapter 7, the first couple of verses, and he's reminding them of something. Our God is the God of glory. And there's many things we could say about that word glory, but one of the things the word glory means is transcendent. In other words, God is greater, bigger than anything that we try to put God into. 
So stop trying to put God into something. Stop trying to bring God down to where you can, you know, put him in this little box that you can understand. Don't take the mystery out of God. God, because he is God and he's the God of glory, transcends any and all other things. He's greater and bigger and more majestic and and more splendor than anything we could ever even imagine. And the reason why Stephen is starting off this way is one of the mistakes that the religious leaders of Israel made throughout their history, up and even till this time and beyond, is that God was contained in certain places. See, for them, one of the reasons they had such a problem with Stephen you know, exalting Jesus Christ over the temple and over Jerusalem and over the, you know, the promised land or the the land of Israel is because in their minds as Jews, that's where God is. God's there. And what Stephen's going to do is masterfully go back through actually all of Jewish history, starting even with Abraham, and say, do you realize that most of our history as Jews happened outside this land and outside Jerusalem and outside that temple? And don't you realize that God can't be contained in any physical place? And so why you are revering this place when God is bigger than God is in every country? is what Stephen's trying to tell his leadership. God works in every kind of people. God is not just working in Jerusalem. God's not just in this temple. God's not just in the land of Israel. He's everywhere. He is the God of glory that transcends everything. And that's one of his main points. And that's what we have to be careful about, even in our lives, that we don't try to bring the God of glory that transcends everything down to specific little things and put him in boxes and begin to revere, well, that's the place where God is. That's where I meet with God, but you know, I can't meet with God over here because God doesn't meet with people over here. He doesn't work over here. He just works here. And so we're looking for God just here. And, and Stephen is trying to get all of us to see, I think, let's never forget he's the God of glory. So he starts off again with Abraham and look, he's saying, did not God, our God appear to him, not in the land of Israel, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple. He appeared to Abraham when he lived in Mesopotamia. He was a pagan. God was still working there in Mesopotamia, wasn't he? And then he said, oh, and then he settled in Haran. God was speaking to him there too, wasn't he? God was leading Abraham in Haran. Wasn't the promised land. Wasn't the temple. Wasn't Jerusalem. And then he said, oh, and then he said, God said, go out from your country and from your relatives. Come into the land. I'll show you. So he went out from the country. The Chaldeans settled in Haran. After that, his father died. God made him move to the country where you now live. But notice, he did not, God, give him any of it for an inheritance. Not even a foot of ground. No soil yet. Yet God promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though Abraham has yet even had no child. No soil, no son, and yet God promised it. And Abraham believed. Even though there was nothing there to show for it yet, Abraham still started to follow God. The point that Stephen, though, is making in all this is God was working outside the land. Why are you just saying God's just here? When God throughout our history has always worked outside the land of Israel, outside Jerusalem, even with his own people. Then he goes into their place in Egypt. 
He says in verse 6, Oh, and God even told Abraham, Your descendants are going to be foreigners in a foreign country whose citizens will enslave them and mistreat them for 400 years. For 400 years, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. God was working. It wasn't like God just had to be at a certain place at a certain time. And then he goes on to talk about how God's going to you know, punish Pharaoh and the, the nation of Egypt for that. He talks about God giving Abraham the covenant of circumcision, but all this happened outside the land of Israel. That's his point. His point is also this, as we transition now into this little thing on Joseph. And that is that not only is Stephen trying to show the leaders of Israel that you have reduced God to this place, to this place, that's how you've reduced God. And you have brought the God of glory down to certain places and certain times and certain seasons. But he says, you are continuing what the ancestors always did. And that was when God raised up somebody to go and speak to the nation, to his people, they rejected that person. They pushed them away. And he's going to use now Joseph and Moses as two of his greatest examples. In fact, he says there at the beginning when he starts talking about Joseph, he says, Joseph's own brothers, who became the leaders of the tribes of Israel that in a sense made up the original Israel, what did they do to their own brother Joseph when he began to reveal to them the things that God revealed to him? They pushed him away and sold him into slavery. They wanted nothing to do with the one that God had chosen. In fact, we even sort of see that happening even throughout Israel's history. Say, even take David, for example. That was the one that God had his hand on, but his older brothers obviously didn't think so and didn't want anything to do. Again, jealousy, envy, a lot of it was driving it. But the point Stephen is making is the one that that God was working through, the one that he had his hand on, the one that he wanted to speak to, you know, our ancestors through, to, they were always being pushed away and rejected. And and the reason he's talking like that is because he wants to basically end by saying, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus, the Son of God. The last one, if you will, that God sent to earth to speak to us. You have done the same thing to Jesus that we and our ancestors have done as a nation to all of God's prophets and spokesmen throughout history. These are the people that God sent to us and over and over and over again, we rejected them and pushed them away. In fact, again, I'm not going to take a lot of time here to go through all this. It's a wonderful sermon or message. And one of the things that we learn from this too, now dealing more with Stephen than in a sense with God, is Stephen's understanding and grasp of the Scriptures. And to me, it is a great challenge to all of us to be men and women of the Word. This young man knew his Old Testament Scriptures, and he was able to masterfully use them in the right context, with the right interpretations, with the right application to the leaders of Israel. That's the wisdom that Stephen had gained through walking in the Scriptures, and walking with the Holy Spirit. He was able to grasp the intent of God in His Word. And now, this young man was teaching those that should have been teaching him. So again, it's a great challenge for us to be men and women of the Word. Notice 
down here in verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise He had made or declared to Abraham, the people increased greatly by number. A Pharaoh came that didn't know Joseph. This one exploited our people and was cruel to our ancestors, forcing them to abandon their infants so they would die. And then here's that verse. At that time, Moses was born and he was beautiful to God. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house. And when he had been abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Now, God wants to use Moses. In fact, Moses even realizes this. Notice what Moses says in verse 25 and what Stephen brings out here. He says about Moses, he thought his own people would understand that God was delivering them through him, but they did not understand. See, Stephen, time after time, is going back into the Old Testament Scriptures, the Scriptures that these men say they believe. And he's using these, their own Scriptures on them to show them their ignorance, their, their hard-heartedness, their lack of belief, their lack of being able to grasp what God intended. Because Stephen is saying our whole history as God's people is filled with the majority of us rejecting the spokespeople of God. These are the people that God wants to use. These are the people that God sent to speak to us. And we're not listening. And I think one of the lessons in there for us is let us not be like that in our lives. Let us make sure that if God is sending someone into our life, or God has placed someone into our life to be a spokesperson for Him, someone that He, God, wants us to listen to, that we are open to listening to them rather than shutting them down and closing our ears like the nation of Israel did. Because that's a mistake that they made that cost them dearly in their relationship with God, you see. And Stephen is saying, you're making the same mistake here today that your ancestors made. In fact, notice this continues to persist. In verse 27, this guy, fellow Jew, says to Moses, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And of course, then he brings up about Moses murdering that guy and says, is that what you're going to do to us too? So Moses fled and then came back after 40 years. And then notice what else now Stephen starts to weave back into this whole thing about the transcendence of God and God working and speaking outside the land. He talks about how God appeared to Moses where? Mount Sinai. Is that part of the land of Israel? No. Jerusalem? No. Temple? No. In fact, later on, notice Stephen even says, and when Moses saw God appearing in the form of this burning bush, what does the voice of God say to Moses? He says, take off your shoes because you're on what? Holy ground. And see, again, we might not appreciate this, but why that was so significant of a point is because to the religious leaders of Israel in Stephen's day, the only holy ground was the temple. That was it. And, and if you're going to speak against the temple, then, you know, you're, you're blaspheming. Because that's the only place God is. That's holy ground right there. And Stephen is saying to them, don't you realize our entire history was God working and moving outside the land of Israel? And it was wherever God was, that was holy ground. In fact, he goes on then to tell them God's uh, agreed for them to build a tabernacle. This sort of movable 
place of worship where they could meet and worship God, but they took it with them. And wherever they went, wherever the tabernacle went, that's where God went with them. He wasn't contained in one place. And so again, Stephen is saying, guys, you have taken our God of glory and you have reduced Him to certain places and certain things. It's wrong. He's always bigger and greater. And we need to get our... And you know, They were accusing Stephen of somehow, you know, defaming God and, and, and having a low view of God. And Stephen's actually doing just the opposite. He has such a high view of God that they have lost that they can't even see the error of their way. So on and on he goes. Basically, he continues to make the same point. If you look at verse 35, another time the people of Israel said to Moses after rejecting him, who made you a ruler and judge? They continued to, you know, reject his leadership throughout his time as their leader. In fact, so much to the point that Stephen sort of ends this, this message with the idea, he says, you realize they so abandoned the leadership of Moses and, and didn't follow Moses that when Moses was gone, they made this golden calf and, and they went into all this idolatrous worship he said, that was our ancestors. And basically, Stephen's saying to the religious leaders, you are doing the same thing that our ancestors have done. So notice, I'll come up to this point. Notice in verse 48. Finally, Stephen says, look, God didn't want David to build a house but God did allow Solomon to build him a house. But even there, notice what Stephen says. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all these things? David, again, quoting from the Psalms there, is trying to show people the greatness of God and that He's not limited to a place, even as great as the temple is, even as great as Jerusalem is, even as great as the land of Israel is. God is bigger and greater than it all. And God help us never to reduce God down to a size that somehow may be more manageable for us, but somehow then begins to bring the transcendent God down instead of letting Him be where He should always be. Notice again this phrase, very important phrase in our worship of God that we remember this. Back in verse 48, the Most High God. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. And it's a word that basically means that God is higher in rank, higher in station, higher in place than anyone or anything in the universe. He is the highest. That's why the angels, even when Jesus was born, said glory to God in the what? The highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, Hosanna, they would cry. Glory to God in the highest. 
It was a way of saying, God, you're above, you're above it all. You're greater than it all. You're bigger than it all. And when we get the view of God, when we're, our opinion and view and estimate of God is up there, and we keep it there, I guarantee you we will be people of worship because we begin to put God in His rightful place and everything else then in our lives and us and everything else and everybody else begins to fall in line in their rightful places. That's what Stephen was doing. He was putting God in His rightful place as the Most High God. Now, something else here. Stephen knew the Scriptures. Stephen had a a passion for God, a passion for His Word. He had courage. He had boldness. Because here's this young man who's standing before all these leaders of Israel. As I said, the only thing we could compare it to in America would be that Stephen would be standing before, say, the entire Senate and the Supreme Court at the same time. That's pretty much what the Sanhedrin of Israel represented. And yet Stephen is just laying it out there for him. Truth is truth. Now I want to get into a little bit here about the leadership of Israel. And I want us to see them for who they are because there's a lot here as we end chapter 7 that I think is a warning to us to not be ever like the leadership of Israel. Notice what Stephen says to the leadership of Israel beginning in verse 51. First of all, he says, you stubborn people. The word stubborn. Stiff-necked. Headstrong. Obstinate. Pick whatever word you want. We have to be careful of that. One of the marks of a spiritual person, and we're going to talk about this in the month of November when we do our book sermon on the book of Psalms, one of the marks of a spiritual person is that they're willing to be moved and willing to change. That they're not so set in their ways that they're so hard-hearted and stiff-necked and stubborn and obstinate that no matter what God does, no matter what He says to them, they stay. They cannot be moved. That is a very dangerous place for all of us to get to. Hopefully none of us ever get to that point. Hopefully we stay sensitive to God. And when we hear His voice, we respond. But see, the nation of Israel and the leadership had so for so long, in a sense, turned God's voice off and said, no, here's where we stay. And in a sense, they took pride in it. Like, nope, we're standing up for our traditions. Listen, there's nothing wrong we're standing up for things that need to be continually stood up for as long as those are the things that God wants us to stand up for. And then he goes on to say, you are also uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. And what a great term to the people that prided themselves on being circumcised. But he says, here's your problem. You are closed off, if you will. Your, your, your ears and your heart are covered. And God can't get through. 
And, and in a sense, Stephen was sort of God's last effort to try to speak to the hearts and minds of the leadership of Israel. And obviously we know it didn't work. Then he goes on to say something else. He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. The word resisting means to strive against, to oppose, to be adverse to. And Stephen is saying, be careful that when the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives, that we're not striving against God, the Holy Spirit. I think that's why Paul says in the New Testament, don't grieve or quench the Holy Spirit of God. When we know God is prompting us and moving us to do or say or not do or not say or whatever, let's not strive or fight or struggle against the Holy Spirit. Let's be pliable in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Then again, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? And he's already done this in his sermon or in his message. They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Stephen never read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because Stephen, to his dying breath, is standing up for the purity of the truth and worship of his God. And he's willing to die for it if that's what needs to happen. What passion this young man had. Especially when we understand again who he's standing up to at this time in history. Then he goes on to say, you received the law by decrees even. You, you are more responsible because you have the Word of God that was given by angels. But notice, you did not obey it. Wow. Again, we talked about this Sunday. How, as a nation, they had the privilege of having the revealed Word of God and yet they never really got it. And we have to be careful that those of us in the New Testament ear, that when we take in the Word of God, we not only get it in a sense and grasp it and comprehend it and get the intent that God had for it for us, but that it gets us, that it grabs our heart and it changes us. Or we allow it to change us and transform us. By the way, the word obey is an interesting word. It means to have an eye upon continually. It was a word that talked about taking great care of something. So even here too, I think Stephen is saying, God entrusted you with His Word. And you didn't really take care of it. You, you didn't keep your eye on the ball, if you will. You took your eye off of His Word and sort of started to bring in your traditions and again, I think that's a great challenge for us to make sure that, that we have been entrusted, not just with the Old Testament Scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, but we've been entrusted with the entire Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. And God is saying to us today, as His people, I've entrusted you with this unbelievable gift. 
What are you doing with it? Are you taking great care of it? Are you keeping your eye continually on it? This word obey, honestly, was a word that was used in the culture to speak about guarding and watching over something. In a sense, it's like God is saying, I made you stewards of my word. Are you being good stewards? Are you watching over it, guarding it with everything you've got, defending it? All of those things can be applicable to the word obey in verse 53. Well, notice the reaction. It wasn't they were going to throw their arms around him and invite him over for dinner. It was when they heard these things, they became furious. The word literally means to be sown or cut in two. We talked about that last week. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces. And notice, they ground their teeth at him. This speaks about how angry they were. The antagonism and hatred towards this young man. How dare he tell us, the religious leaders of Israel, that somehow we're wrong. See, part of the problem over the years is the Jews, instead of allowing their walk with God and the Word of God to humble them, they became lifted up in pride. And that's what this led to. Their pride. Notice Stephen, though, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and saw the glory of God. The words looked intently mean to fix one's eyes upon, to gaze at. In other words, notice... Stephen's focus isn't on these rocks that are about ready to be pelted at him or the people that are about ready to stone him. That's not his focus. His focus isn't on anything on earth. His focus is in heaven. His focus is on glory. And that's why I used those verses that I did before our worship time today because I was reminded of these as I was studying for this. Listen to these verses from the book of Colossians. Where Paul says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. That's where Stephen's focus was. He wasn't concerned about the things of earth. His focus was on the Lord and on the things of heaven and glory, even up to the time he died. Jesus also said in His Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. And I think Stephen's relationship with God was so undiluted, so pure, that that's why he was able to see God even at this moment in his life. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What makes this significant is almost every other place in the New Testament, after Jesus has resurrected and been exalted at the right hand of God, He's usually seated. This is one of the very few times after His exaltation where He's standing. Why is Jesus standing? Well, first of all, I think because... Stephen is standing up for Jesus. Jesus is standing up for him. And I think it's a picture of Jesus himself taking special note of what's happening down here on earth as he literally stands 
But it also means this. It also means that Jesus Christ in his position in the universe is firm, fixed, and immovable. And in spite of what the religious leaders of Israel think of Jesus, despite of the rejection of the world and all of that, Jesus Christ is exalted at the right hand of God the Father, and that is something that is firm, fixed, established, and immovable throughout all eternity. And we see that here. And then Stephen says, look! It means to have regard for, to cherish, to pay attention to. In other words, again, Stephen's heart and passion is on what's happening in heaven. Not what's happening or going to happen on earth. He said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. His focus, again, isn't on the crowd that's about ready to kill him. It's on Jesus. And we see a man who has so walked in close fellowship with Jesus that we see he literally does act like Jesus. Because you see many parallels between the words of Jesus on the cross and the words of Stephen as he's about to die here. In a sense, he's modeling what he learned from Jesus. His example. Which is what any true disciple of Jesus is supposed to do. To act, to be like Jesus. So notice, they covered their ears once again. They shut their ears. And they shouted out with a loud voice. And they rushed at him. The word rushed means a violent, hostile movement with one intent. One thing in mind. One passion for them. It wasn't the glory of God. It was getting rid of this young man and killing him. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. They began to murder him and kill him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. The reason why I think they laid their cloaks down is so that they could wind up and throw the stones. I don't think Saul actually was, was actually doing the stoning, but Saul was certainly there to see it all take place. And this event, we're going to see, had a profound impact on Saul for the rest of his life. Notice, they continued to stone Stephen while he prayed. I'm pretty sure that if I was being stoned, I wouldn't be praying. Maybe I would. Maybe I don't give, you know, the Lord and how he could work in my life as much credit as I should. But what I do see here is I want you to see the dying grace that I think God gives his children. And why this is important is because not only do I think the Bible teaches it, but I have seen it with my own eyes as a pastor. There are many Christians who go, oh my goodness, when they hear of maybe some way that a that someone has died and how horrific it was and, and probably how painful it was, you know, their, their mind goes to all these, you know, extremes. And one of the things that I try to, in a way of comfort, say to them is, I believe that God gives His people dying grace. And that the things that you may think they're experiencing, 
I think at least are lessened because God lessens them for them. So that they're not as bad as we probably cook up in our minds that they are or could be. And I've seen this firsthand. As a pastor for 30 years, I've been at the bedsides of many people who passed into eternity. Whether it be in the hospital or at home or anywhere. And, and many of them have died in sometimes pretty horrific ways. And yet, there is such peace when a child of God is ready to pass from this life to the next. I believe because just like we're seeing here, how did Stephen have the wherewithal to have his mind in such a place where he could even be thinking about praying as he was being murdered by stones? Dying grace. God gives His children special grace at special times. And this obviously was a special time where special grace was needed. And notice what Stephen prays. Lord Jesus, first of all, receive my spirit. The word receive is a beautiful word. It means to take by the hand. Stephen's saying, Lord Jesus, I see you up there in heaven. Take me by the hand and just lead me through this valley of the shadow of death into your presence. What a beautiful picture we have here of the death of a saint. And then he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Wasn't it Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Very similar. Because he's following in the footsteps of his Savior. He's saying, Lord, in the balance of things, don't put this on the scale. Don't weigh this on them. Wow. What a young man. What a relationship with his God. And then the Bible says when he said this, he died. But let's not forget what that word died means. It means to fall asleep. It's not talking about soul sleep. The Bible uses the word sleep to describe a Christian's death because it's describing the rest and peace that they now have in passing from this life to the life to come. They are at rest. That's why, again, I've shared this with you before. The word cemetery means a place of rest. And for the death of God's people, they are now at peace. They are now at rest. And they can enter into that peace and rest into the very presence of the Lord. Jesus Himself said to the thief who believed in Him on the other side of Him that day, Today you will be with Me in paradise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I believe that at that moment that Stephen died, Stephen literally was taken by the hand of Jesus Himself and ushered in to heaven itself to be with Jesus. That's the glorious hope that you and I have as the saints of God. And this young man shows us here what one person, one life can do 
if it's totally dedicated and committed to God. And I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. God may not ask us to die a martyr's death like Stephen. But what God does ask of each of us as His children is to be a witness, to be a light, to be that city, that beautiful city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden so that people can see the light of God in our lives and glorify our Father in heaven. May chapter 7 of the book of Acts be an inspiration to all of us, especially when it comes to remembering that we know and serve and live for and love the Most High God, the God of glory that transcends everything and anything. Let's pray. God, we thank You that even though You are greater than all, above all, over all. God, You are intimately interested in each and every one of us. You know us backwards and forwards. No detail of our lives escapes You at any time. God, You care about us more than we could ever imagine. And your purpose and design and will for each of us is different. For Stephen, the design and will you had for his life was that one day he would stand before the leadership of Israel and basically be your last message to them. And that he would die a martyr's death. That's what brought glory to you. And Lord, you're looking for us in our lives. Again, not necessarily to have to die a martyr's death, but you're looking for people who are willing to come before you and say, Lord, my life is not my own. I have been bought with a great price, the blood of Jesus Christ. My life is no longer mine. I lay my life down before you. I place it at your disposal. Do with me, God, whatever Your will is. Lord, may we all come to that place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.